Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor. Appreciate you guys coming on out. I mean, this is an exciting day. We're kicking off this Christmas series this year. We are calling it It Started With Three, and I am pumped because I love Christmas. I love everything about it. I'm just like a Christmas guy, okay? I love the Christmas music. It is like 24 hours a day, seven days a week in my household. Every time I walk into the kitchen, it's Alexa. Everyone at home right now, their thing is going off. Alexa, Shuffle John's Christmas playlist, and that is a beautifully cultivated playlist, which is the best. I mean, it's no Christmas shoes, though. You're not going to hear that one in my house, okay? But it's just phenomenal. I love it. My house is like a department store. It's all day long. I love the decorations of Christmas. I feel like with decorations, it's like a, there's like a nostalgia to it. You kind of put out the same ones every single year. I actually take pictures of where I put my decorations each year, so like the next year, I can put them in the same place, a little OCD, but whatever, it's fine. It helps me to live that way. Um, I have some decorations that are 40 years old. I took them from my parents. I love decorating the tree. That's always an exciting thing. I know some of you, I was talking to you, you've just decorated your tree this week. And, and for us, that's always fun in my family. One of the things that we like to do, my wife and I, whenever we travel, if we're going to a place that we like, maybe you do this, you grab an ornament to sort of commemorate that trip. But it's got to be a, like a good trip, which is why we have no you know, Disney decorations or anything like that. Um, <laughs> we're adults who would do that. Uh, <laughs> not at this church. Um, so, but the problem with that sort of thing is that my wife and I have very different taste when it comes to Christmas ornaments. And so wherever we go, we have to each get our own, which is fine. I mean, the Christmas tree really is pretty packed to the gills now, but she likes really what I would describe as fancy, ornate, really classy ornaments. I sort of tend towards the more whimsical ones, you know, with childlike wonder and, or as she calls them, white trash. Um, it's fine. No, it's fine. Okay, that's just between her and God. And, you know, she and Jesus will figure that out in the end. Um, but there's just something about Christmas and that we just love. And it's difficult to necessarily put your finger on what that is, but I feel like it's just the simplicity of the holiday, right? There's a, there's a quietness. It's, I'm dreaming, right? There's just that scene that even though we live in South Florida, we all picture that winter wonderland, and it's wonderful, and I love that Christmas. I'm not sure how, how close it is to the first Christmas, but, you know, because what we celebrate really is more of a hybrid Christmas. We, it's sort of the Bible meets Charles Dickens meets, meets Hallmark, and... I'm not saying there's a problem with that. I'm just saying it's good as Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, to be aware of that. Because when you dig below the surface of the first Christmas, you see that things were a little different. There's a lot more going on than meets the eye. And so what we're going to do today and for the next three weeks is we are going to take a look at where it all started. Because this wonderful holiday really began with three people, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And so every week, we're going to take a look at one of these figures in the Christmas story, and we're going to try to find out what we can learn about them, and ultimately, what we can learn about ourselves. So to kick off, I want to talk to you guys today about Joseph. So if we're honest about Joseph, and we're always honest here at this church, we sort of treat Joseph like a supporting actor in this whole Christmas movie. I mean, not even that. It's, he's more like an extra. He's definitely not treated like a main character. We'll put him on a greeting card. Not a problem. We'll put his little plastic figure in the nativity scene, but ain't nobody talking about 
Joseph. We'll talk about Mary. Love Mary. Talk about wise men and those gifts. We'll talk about the shepherds all day long. We love the shepherds, just at this church. I mean, because like, we are the shepherds when you really hear their story. But we tend to ignore Joseph, and I think that's a mistake. I actually think Joseph is one of the greatest characters in the Christmas story. Now, one obvious detail about Joseph, and it's, and it's this detail that I don't think we put enough emphasis on, is that Joseph was Jesus' dad. I told you it was obvious. <laughs> but not his biological dad. He's adopted dad. And that's a big deal that Joseph was his father because often I think we picture Joseph just being there at the manger and then it's over. But he was there every day with Jesus up until probably about 14 or 15 years old. We don't know exactly what happened, but it seems that he must have passed away at some time in Jesus's teenage years. But Joseph was prevalent in Jesus's life for all of his formative years. Thanksgiving just passed. I had a chance to spend three days with my dad, which is great. I don't normally get that much time with him, but we got three days. And it's so interesting to see how father-son or parent-child relationships change and evolve and grow and mature over the years. And as I look back at all that my dad has taught me, both actively and by watching him and how he's lived his life and lived his faith and the way that he loves the people around him, it's shown me a lot. And now that I'm a dad, I'm a brand new dad, I'm starting to think about, okay, well, what do I want to teach my daughter? What do I want her to learn from me? And what do I not her to like not learn from me? And that list is getting longer and longer every day. And so this week, as I was reading this story, it really made me begin to wonder, well, what did Jesus learn from his dad? What did he see Joseph doing? Because you got to remember, while Jesus was fully God, I think we often forget that he was also fully human, which means he needed to be taught. Jesus would have had to have been taught how to pray. He would have had to have been taught how to read and understand scripture. Someone would have taught him how to give and how to forgive and he would have had to have been shown what it looks like to follow after God. So my question really is, what did Jesus' earthly father do to shape him into the man that he would become later in life? Let's just jump into the story to find out. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18 and just kind of take it from there. So Matthew tells us, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Let's pause right here for a second because I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Some of us know this, some of us don't. When we often read pledged to be married, as modern Americans, we think this means they're engaged, right? You date for a while, then you get engaged, and then you get married. I'm from New Jersey up in the north. You tend to date for about five, eight, ten years, then you get engaged, then you get married. Down in the south, well, you're engaged by about five months, full-blown family by about a year and a half, okay? Things are a little bit different depending on which region you're from, but 2,000 years ago, at this time, while it says they were pledged to be married, they were already legally married at this point. Now, the difference is, during this one-year pledge period, they would not have lived together, and they would not have consummated the marriage yet. And that's important. That's key, because look what happens next. 
But before they came together, and you can use your imagination as to what that means, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. That's a problem. So I also love how the scripture just throws the Holy Spirit bit in, like it's just a minor detail. But it, can you imagine how this story, like this conversation went the first time? Mary going over to Joseph's house, knocking on the door, giving him the old, hey, can we talk? Four worst words you're ever going to hear. Like there's nothing, nothing good comes after that. And so Mary tells Joseph, hey, I just want to let you know I'm pregnant, but it's cool. It's God's baby. Had that happen. Holy Spirit got involved. Oh, sure. So, Perfect. Makes sense. Like so many skeptics today who scoff at the virgin birth, Joseph was not buying what she was selling either. I mean, we know this because we read, because he was her husband, pardon me, Joseph was her husband, he was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So this right here is huge. We got to camp out on verse 19 for a while, because this tells us everything we need to know about Joseph, Jesus's father. So our particular translation here describes him as being faithful to the law. Other translations, one might say he was a righteous man, but what they're both trying to translate out of the original Hebrew is the fact that Joseph would have been called a Sadiq. Now, this is not just an adjective to describe someone who would have been a good man or a moral man or even a God-fearing man. A Sadiq is a formal label. It's an official title. This is a term that is applied to those rare people who study and learn and practice the law, as you often hear spoken about in the New Testament, the law of Moses meticulously, scrupulously, now, knowing that Joseph is a Sadiq tells us a couple things about how he might have looked and, and the way in which he may have lived. Now, chances are Joseph would have looked similar to this guy here, minus the lens crafter flames with transition lenses. I mean, he, we know because he was a Sadiq, he would have worn this prayer shawl 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As a Sadiq, he would have worn this phylactery on his head which is a small wooden box which contains scripture. He would have had a beard that would have never been cut. Joseph would have obeyed perfectly all of the food laws. He would have supported his local synagogue, and he would have made the almost 100-mile journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the high holy days at the temple. Now, at this point in history, after being a priest, there was no greater honor than being known as a Sadiq. He wasn't rich, he wasn't powerful, but he was faithful to the law. And now, this woman of his dreams, this woman who he has been praying for for years, this woman who God has brought into his life, well, now she's pregnant, and it's not his baby. And that's a problem. Because now he knows he's got a massive dilemma on his hand. I mean, what is he going to do with Mary? Joseph loves this girl, but it's clear that she's been unfaithful. I mean, we understand that she's telling this story about God and the Holy Spirit, but as far as Joseph's concerned, come on, when does that happen? In the law of Moses, which he loves, 
states that infidelity during this engagement period is actually considered adultery. In fact, the Mishnah, which is a commentary on the law, which he would have known well, states that infidelity during this pledge period is actually a worse sin, a far graver sin, than when they're actually married and living together. So this is a, a defining moment in Joseph's life. He loves this woman, but he loves the law. And the law is very clear as to what must happen to this woman. So if he goes to her and he says, Mary, you got to come clean to me. If he goes to her and she confesses that, you know what, you're right, I had an affair. Well, the law of Moses states that she must be stoned to death. That both she and the man would have to die. Now, maybe she might say that she was, was raped, okay? Interestingly enough, there was a rumor that would follow Mary the rest of her life. And this rumor was that she had been raped by a Roman soldier. If she claimed that she was raped, she would be spared, but the rapist would be stoned. However, if she does not confess to what actually happened, and Mary is sticking to the virgin birth story, the only other alternative according to the law of Moses would be the ordeal of the bitter water. And you can read about this in the book of Numbers. The bitter water was actually a concoction of dirt and water, almost floor sweepings from the temple floor. And they would make the woman drink this. And if the woman was guilty, reports say that her reproductive organs would actually explode. I don't even know what that means. If the woman was innocent, she lived. You're not hearing about this in Christmas songs. Now, I realize Joseph, by right and by law, could call for her execution. He could call for her to be stoned. He could certainly make her drink those bitter waters. But while the law demanded death, Joseph chose grace. He would save her from being stoned. He would save her from having to drink the bitter water. He would even save her from public ridicule by just divorcing her quietly out of the public eye. In one of the greatest moments in the Christmas story, the father of Jesus chooses compassion over condemnation. And this decision, let me tell you this, this decision would have sent shockwaves through that community. For years they would have been talking about it. I mean, we're talking about it today. I believe this decision was so monumental that it had to have an impact on Jesus Christ and his formation and his development. You fast forward 30 years, one day Jesus finds himself sitting at a well in the country of Samaria. Scripture says he was sitting alongside a woman of ill repute. And after this long conversation with her, it gets awkward because Jesus calls her out in her life choices. And he says to her, you don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. She is literally in the midst of an adulterous affair. This woman, whose culture has abandoned her, whose culture has made her an outcast, whose culture would love nothing more than to see her drink deep those bitter waters, 
And yet Jesus, as we read, would show her compassion and offer her the living water. It's, just, it's incredible. I mean, I wonder if Jesus was thinking of his father the one time he was at the temple and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery to him. We read, teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, you know, the one your father loved. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? I mean, they were right. This is what the law commanded, but Jesus, like his earthly father, chose love over the letter of the law, chose compassion over condemnation when he famously says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And if you remember the story, they all walked away. And he looked down at this woman and he says, where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? And then he reached down, lifted her up, wiped the tears from her cheeks, and said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. We talk about the impact that our parents have on us, and at least for me, it is very difficult to ignore the connection between Joseph's actions and Jesus' life. Let's jump back into the Christmas story because we are way ahead of ourselves. Now, at this point in the Christmas story, Joseph has only considered the divorce. He hasn't done anything yet. He's just considered it. And we read that after he has considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. We're going to talk about what he was afraid of in just a second. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So the angel shows up to him in a dream and says, Joseph, you don't need to be afraid. So the question is, what is he afraid of? What is holding him back from saying yes to the will of God for his life, which clearly is marrying Mary. Joseph is afraid of losing his reputation. If he submits to God's will and marries this woman, that's it for his reputation. It's over. He will go from being a Sadiq, a coveted reputation in his community, to now being a man associated with two people of sullied reputations. Mary, an adulteress. Jesus, an illegitimate child. Clearly, this is God's will for his life. So what's he going to do? We read that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife. For us, I think the implication here is that listening to the voice of God can sometimes ruin our reputation. There will be a time in all of our lives when God will call you to do something that will draw the criticism of others. He has called us to live differently. Students in the room, I, I, was, I was thinking about what it was like being a teenager. 
The amount of stands that God calls you to make at that age in life is unlike any other time in your life. Students in the room, God has called you to take a stand at school. Maybe for you, maybe that's making the decision, you know what? I'm going to make a stand, and I'm not going to drink under age. And you and I all know that when you're, that, when you're at that party and you make that decision, that puts a target on your back. Single people, God calls us to wait until marriage, and yet when you're in the dating scene and that conversation comes up, it gets awkward, and it puts a target on your back. I once heard a pastor say, if you're not ready to be criticized for your obedience to God, then you're not ready to be used by God. Because loving God means surrendering to him in heart, soul, strength, and reputation. And in this amazing act of submission, we see Joseph bowing before the throne of God and saying, this is going to change my life forever. This is going to put a target on my back. Yet, not my will, Lord. Let your will be done. And in that moment, Joseph lost his reputation. But he gained a brand new identity. The father of Jesus Christ. See, Joseph knew scripture well. He loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and reputation. But he also knew the importance of putting your faith into action. You see, it's one thing to say that you believe in God. It's one thing to be able to quote Scripture. But are you willing to love God with your actions? Are you willing to say yes to God's plans even when they don't make any sense at all? Are you willing to say yes to his plans even when they look completely different than the plans that you have for your life? And are you willing to follow God wherever he might lead you. Joseph was. Once Jesus was born, angel Lord shows back up in his life and says, get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. Joseph didn't ask a single question. He just responded in faith. Now, we don't think much about this, but this would have been a massive sacrifice for Joseph and his family. Doing this, he would have had to sacrifice economic security, leaving behind his, his income as a carpenter, probably this role or this business that they have grown generationally. He just left that behind. He would have left behind all the comforts of home. He would have left behind any kind of familial support system, all in faith, all in order to protect his son and our Savior. James, who is a New Testament author, I think perfectly captures the essence of Joseph when he says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters? If you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions. Joseph was famous for his reputation by his faith. He was a Sadiq known for it. But he also knew that if he didn't put his academic faith into action, well, then his faith was worthless. And he showed his faith by showing compassion to Mary. He showed his faith 
by submitting his life to the will of God, and he showed his faith by taking that dangerous trip to Egypt. Now, I don't know for certain, but I just have to imagine that when that James was thinking about Joseph when he wrote these words, who, if you don't know, was his father as well. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So the New Testament does not record a single word of Joseph. Not one. But his actions speak volumes. And I would argue his actions and his faith ultimately shaped our Savior's world view. So with that in mind, my challenge to you as adults is to leave a legacy of faith. Whether you're a parent or a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle, or an adult who just has some child in your life, what are your actions showing the next generation about God? Are you living a life of bold faith? Are we showing our children and the next generation that God can be trusted? Are we showing them the importance of loving others? Luke gives us just a small glimpse into Jesus' teenage years when he says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was watching his parents and he was learning. And our kids are watching us as well. So what are we teaching them? Are we showing them that God is a priority in our life? Do they see us praying to him? Do they see us serving him in some capacity? Do they see us going to church regularly to worship him and, and to give thanks to him for all the blessings that he has given us in this life? Or do they watch us catch up on work around the house and just go out in the boat? Doesn't mean we can't enjoy a special weekend here or there, but what does our pattern of worship tell the next generation about their God? See, I firmly believe that the best way for a kid to know God is to know someone who knows God, and that's you. They are watching you. They're watching us. So what are we teaching them? Folks, as adults, we have a massive responsibility to shape our children's faith. Do not underestimate your influence in that. Scripture says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. So this Christmas, remember, started with a father who put his faith into action. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that we could come together in the beginning of this Christmas season to learn about where it all started. Lord, it's so interesting to look at Joseph, this man that you chose to raise your son. 
And it's so amazing to see how later in life Jesus was so impacted by his Father God. And I just pray that for us today. We would be mindful that as adults, whether we're parents or not, the next generation is watching us. They're learning about you through us. I pray, God, that this Christmas season, you would light our faith on fire. That we would come back to you in a new way and that our faith can be bold and to show the world around us how great you are, how good you are, Lord. And that you sent your son 2,000 years ago to be born in a tiny manger to one day die for us. Thank you for that gift. We ask all this in Jesus' name.